Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. After four years of talking about little else, when the Brexit deal eventually came on Christmas Eve in the middle of a global pandemic, you would have been forgiven for having missed the news. Boris Johnson in Downing Street uh, signing the post-Brexit uh, trade deal. Finally found an agreement. It was a long and winding road. The treaty that I've, I've just signed is, is not the end. It is, it is a new beginning. The clock is no longer ticking. And I think the beginning of what will be a wonderful relationship. For years, Brexiteers have promised that the city would flourish. London would become Singapore on Thames once it left the financial regulations of the EU. But what does the deal actually mean for the UK's financial sector? I wouldn't call the end of the city, but the city is probably in the most precarious position it's been in, certainly in my lifetime. Those fat-cat lawyers, fat-cat bankers, the companies that they're working for are paying pretty significant chunks in tax. And if they're all a little bit poor, if some of those jobs are offshore, the amount of tax they pay will be slightly less. And that means less money to spend on teachers, less money to spend on doctors, less money to spend on hospitals. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Brex and the City. There were certainly points in the final week when they thought they wouldn't get a deal. Oliver Wright is the policy editor of The Times. He's been covering Brexit for as long as he can remember. Well, since the referendum in 2016, but it feels a lot longer. Before we look into what the deal means for the city, Oliver told us how they managed to pull it off at the 11th hour. In the last 24 hours, weirdly... The deal was pretty much nailed on. But in the way of these things, it was bizarre. The European side discovered that they were working on the wrong Excel spreadsheet in terms of fish stocks. So the last 24 hours was basically spent going through individual fish stocks, trying to reconcile the previous Excel spreadsheet and the new Excel spreadsheet. Um, <laughs> and that's why you had this sort of weird delay where you had, first of all, the day before Christmas Eve, um, Downing Street thought they would have an agreement that night. Then they penciled in a press conference at 7am the next morning, that then disappeared. And it wasn't until sort of mid-afternoon on Christmas Eve that actually the deal was signed. It was just this sort of messing around, trying to get everything sort of signed, sealed, all the details done in order to be able to announce it formally. I love the idea that all those missed press conferences were caused by somebody sat there with an Excel spreadsheet. Yeah, I mean, it was very strange. I was actually having a telephone call with one of the main UK negotiators on, on on Christmas Eve who was just taking me through how the deal had been done in advance of it 
being announced. And we were just sort of chatting on the phone, going through the problems. And then suddenly in the background, I could hear a cheer. And the guy said, oh, I think I better go. And then 15 minutes later, the deal was actually announced. So that was, it was quite an entertaining moment. I mean, it, it sounds like it was very tense up until the last minute. But now that we actually finally have a deal, what does it say? Because I think, you know, it came over Christmas. A lot of us realise that we've swerved the cliff edge. We do have a deal. But people are, might still be a bit hazy on the detail. So there was one last big trade-off. And as everyone said, this was always probably going to come down to fish. You had to get everything else fixed. And then fish was the, the one issue that would be left remaining. And it had to be some sort of trade-off involving fish. And so it came to pass. In the 24-hour period before the deal was struck, the big dilemma was exactly by how much was the European fish quota going to reduce over a transition period and how long was that transition period going to be. And that was the point at which the British decided to go for smaller reductions in the European quota for fish in return for changing something called rules of origin for car parts. Basically, how much of a percentage of a car has to be made in the UK to call it British. So in the end, weirdly, it was quite a sort of a binary deal that was done. The EU gave ground on cars and rules of origins, and we gave ground on fish. I think one of the overlooked areas that people really haven't talked that much about so far is services. Now, you know, the UK has got a really strong, powerful service economy. And if you look at our exports to the EU, we export far more services to the EU than we import. Conversely, we import far more goods from the EU than we export. And what we've got is a deal that by and large concentrates on goods and doesn't concentrate on services. And in services in particular, the deal is very, very thin. Just to take one example, if you are a, a doctor, a dentist, an accountant, an architect, the qualifications that you have got in this country are no longer recognised in any other EU country. So you can't go and work really? and provide services as you were able to do last year into the EU. Financial services, as of yet, we still don't have this thing which was known as equivalence, where basically the EU accept that our rules and regulations in terms of looking at financial services and regulating them are the same as theirs. Now, we may get that in March, but already you've seen the trading of some EU companies moving from London onto the continent. You're going to see probably over the period of the next five, 10 years, a slow drift in some of the functionality of London, some of that moving to Paris, some of it moving to Bonn, other European capitals. And you know that isn't great news on a basic level for the UK exchequer, because you know, these companies won't be paying their taxes in the UK, they'll be paying them in the EU. It feels like years waiting for a deal. We've got a deal, but to be honest, there's still a lot of uncertainty out there. And it does sound like a lot of it is suboptimal. And I think the way some people have described it, and I would agree, is it's thin. It is also possible in the months and indeed probably more likely the years ahead, additional things will be negotiated. You know, this is not a, an agreement that is going to be set in aspect. There will be things that change over a period of time. There'll be things that are potentially added on. People may think that Brexit is done, but you know, our relationship with Europe still exists. It's always going to exist. And how that relationship is managed and is run is something that is organic. So in some ways, Brexit is over, but Brexit in, in, in many regards has only just begun. Just what everyone wants to hear. So, in a way, the, the biggest story is, is what's not in the deal, and that's probably what's going to take over the news agenda for 
you know, the next few months at least. But in terms of services and in terms of the financial centre in particular, how is that going down politically? I mean, how bad is this for the city and how bad is that for, for the government? I think the difficulty with these things is that there isn't a big bang. You're not going to see a huge change from December's figures to January's figures, indeed to June's figures. And, you know, the coronavirus pandemic is going to mask a lot of the changes anyway. So the other point to make is that because you were dealing with people's money in a very heavily regulated market, the city quite early on decided that they couldn't take any risks with the political uncertainty. And so all their plans were based around a no-deal Brexit altogether so that they had to be able to continue trading. So you aren't going to see any great disruption because a lot of work and a lot of money was spent ensuring that they had the structures in Europe to be able to cope. I do think over a period of time, you could see that London loses out a bit to continental rivals in certain areas. Now, this is the other thing in a way, which perhaps is a, is a shame that the financial crisis meant that people have a very low opinion of the City of London and people in financial services. They just see them as rich, fat cats who deserve a bit of a kicking. They don't have the sort of salient say of the fishing industry, which is worth a tiny, tiny fraction of what the financial services is to the economy of the country. And that does have real-term consequences. Those fat cat lawyers, fat cat bankers are paying pretty significant chunks in tax. The companies that they're working for are paying pretty significant chunks in tax. And if they're all a little bit poor, if some of those jobs are offshored, if some of the companies cut back on their activity in London, the amount of tax they pay will be slightly less. And that means less money to spend on teachers, less money to spend on doctors, less money to spend on hospitals. Whether anyone will blame Boris Johnson and make that causal link, or whether they'll just sort of blame politicians in general without realising that part of the problem was that they caused it because they, they didn't care, I'm a bit suspicious of. But it is going to have real world consequences, but it will be over a long period of time. And it may only be in hindsight that you can really sort of identify those trends. It's been quite an extraordinary time to be a financial journalist. That's Jill Trenor. I'm the city editor of the Sunday Times. Jill always has a finger on the pulse of Britain's financial services sector, which forms a significant portion of Britain's overall economy. I've seen lots of different ways of measuring what the city's worth to the British economy, but I've decided to go with the most recent I've seen, which is from the lobby group City UK, that financial services made up about 10% of GDP. I think it's a pretty decent gauge of what financial services are worth to the economy. And in terms of employment, about 2.3 million people across Britain are employed in financial services. And crucially, two thirds of those jobs are outside London. For instance, JP Morgan, the big US investment bank, has a huge operation in Bournemouth. I think I'm right in saying they're the biggest private sector employer in Dorset. I've said that with my fingers crossed, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure that's true. It's actually one part of our economy where we actually have a trade surplus. According to that same City UK report, financial services exports amounted to about 60 billion in 2019. And they reckoned in that report that that's about almost as much as the US and Switzerland, the next two big exporters combined. Wow. EU member states get about 34% and then America 30 and then the rest 
you know, sort of trickles down. Two and a half times as many US dollars are traded in London as they are in the US. Really? And, and three quarters of all euro trading goes through London. And how much of an impact has Brexit already had in the last four years since the referendum happened? What's been happening in the city? We know from a tracker that the accountants EY do that seven and a half thousand roles have moved from jobs that you think of as city jobs into the EU. The European Central Bank told us just in the run up to Brexit that they thought about 1.1 trillion of assets had moved back into the EU. And we know from, wow. a, from a think tank called New Financial that about 300 firms or so have either set up new legal entities or moved staff into the EU. I think the clearest illustration of kind of what's happened is the European Banking Authority had to move its headquarters from London as a result of Brexit. We know that firms have also set up operations in the EU, Bank of America, City, even our own British banks have also had to make these changes. So I think it is safe for me to at least say that people have moved, subsidiaries have been created in the EU that perhaps might not have been there before. Now that we have a deal, what's been happening in the city? How is how is the city reacting? I think the important thing to remember about the city is that pretty early on, after the referendum result, the city regulators got all the firms in the city to prepare for the worst. The most obvious thing that happened from 11pm on the 31st of December is that some things that happened in London can no longer happen. So, for instance, if you traded shares in London in one of the, I'm going to call them the EU27, I hope that makes sense, but that's the EU without Britain. That's now had to move back to the EU. Well, what this is turning into is about six billion of EU share trading has moved away from London into other venues in Paris or other places in the EU where this can take place. Just in the first days. Yeah, yeah. And then other things have happened. So, for instance, if you own shares in an airline, EasyJet is the easy example. To operate across the EU, at least half its shares had to be owned by EU investors. And so EasyJet actually brought its AGM forward into the latter part of December because the current level was about 45%. So essentially what this means is that airlines are actually having to think about the way they have a relationship with their shareholders to keep themselves under this shareholding limit. Were they surprised that there's so little reference to the city itself in the deal? My understanding of the situation is that services as a whole tend not to be part of these trade deals. They tend to be about goods. They tend to be about tariffs. They tend to be about you know, customs checks. They tend to be about quotas, that sort of thing. I think one of the reasons it's been so surprising for the British economy is because our services economy is so big. Services as a whole make up about 80% of the British economy. And in fact, interestingly, Sarah Hall, who's Professor of Economic Geography at Nottingham University, counted that fish got 16 mentions in the trade cooperation agreement that was signed on Christmas Eve while financial services got six mentions. I'm taking a deep breath because I want to talk about equivalence. Right, brace yourselves. You heard Oliver Wright mention equivalence earlier, and it's the most technical bit of the negotiations that we'll cover. But it's the bit that's crucial to the future of the financial services sector in this country. Will the EU decide that the City of London operates along the same rules and regulations as Europe? And if so... Will they allow us to carry on trading freely with their financial markets? One of the reasons, some people will say, that the city has grown so rapidly in the last 40 or so years 
is in partly because of this passporting. So if you were a firm with an operation in Britain, you could use that kind of passport to operate around the EU 27 nations. Big US banks could then use London to trade pretty much seamlessly across the EU. So they could do business for big German companies, French companies. That passport's gone. So now what firms have had to do is work out how they best keep servicing those clients they were previously servicing through London. They've had to set up operations in the EU. This is one of the ways that the city has thrived. If you think about it, in the 70s and 80s, uh, until the Big Bang, the city was really a, a place of firms run by domestic partnership. Yes, they were doing trade finance across the world, but it, it wasn't this kind of big trading centre that it has become. And that's sort of what made us attractive to lots of foreign banks who wanted to set up headquarters here. Sure. I think you could put it down as, as, as one of the reasons that London and Britain has developed the financial centre that it has. Of the whole Brexit process, the city was hoping that there'd be a way that passporting could remain. That's been off the agenda now for some time. So equivalence would at least try and offer that kind of seamless trading that it did before. For the EU to grant equivalence, the UK would need to convince Europe that the city would maintain the same rigorous regulations that the EU operates under. But the government doesn't appear to have decided where it stands on the issue. Will the city pursue equivalence or divergence with European standards? There's no clear answer yet, but in the meantime, the city has to keep trading, despite the uncertainty. Equivalence is entirely in the EU's gift. So we know, and you'll have seen some figures around this week, that about six billion of EU share trading has now left London and gone back into other sort of trading venues in other parts of the EU. And do you think once it's gone, it's unlikely to come back? How would it come back? I guess it would come back if a deal could be agreed, or at least if the EU could some way decide to grant equivalence in some of these key areas, then maybe it would come back. But at the moment, I think it's gone, uh, for now at least. Obviously that costs the city, it's bad for um, financial institutions. Is it bad for all of us? I mean, how much is this taking out of the tax bill? The City UK argues that the financial services sector is in fact the biggest taxpayer in Britain. You can have a whole debate about what the British economy should look like and what part financial services should play in it. You know, should we in fact be focusing on developing a huge green energy economy, focusing again on manufacturing? We can go around in circles about that. But clearly, at this moment in time at least, financial services does pay its taxes. People who remember the banking crisis and the financial crisis might remember that the British public still owns a stake in NatWest, what was RBS, and had to bail out other banks during the crisis. So it's not always easy sailing, frankly. But the city, or at least the City UK lobby group, would want you to know that indeed it's the biggest taxpayer. have more on this in just a moment. But if you'd like to access more remarkable stories and insightful analysis every day, then do subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times. Join today and get one month free. Search for thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. 
Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So how is the city coping with the realities of Brexit? Last Tuesday, after the first full day of trading under the new post-Brexit regime... I spoke to Alistair Haynes, the founder and chief executive of Aquis Exchange, a platform for people to buy and sell shares, a bit like the London Stock Exchange. He spoke to us from France. We're trading stocks, international as well as domestic stocks. So things like, you know, BT or BP, but also things like, you know, Total or Volkswagen. And then that's what made yesterday such a fascinating day for us, because we saw an, a, a historic event take place as a result of Brexit. Talk me through that. I mean, you're, you're based in both London and Paris. How have things been working up until the start of this year? Well, we opened the Paris office just over a year ago and got regulatory approval to operate there. And the reason we did that was a strategy to be a, a hedge against Brexit. Up till now, the UK had the passport rights to be able to conduct financial services in the EU 27 countries. And that meant that we could have an office in London. And as we were passported and capable of doing business across everywhere else in Europe, then the business would actually be conducted and uh, executed in London. But of course, once January the 1st came along, the, uh, that passport right disappeared. And the European Union brought in what they called a shared trade obligation. And that shared trade obligation meant that people in the EU trading in EU shares securities had to trade them in the EU. And that meant that they were legally not allowed to trade those shares in London. So anything like Total or Volkswagen, as I've just said, they couldn't now trade on our platform in London, which is why we then had to open a platform in an EU27 country. And we chose France, and we set up an office in Paris. And what we saw happen yesterday is because of this rule, and I think I've been in the industry for over 40 years, and I've only seen an event like this happen maybe two or three times during that time, is we saw this dramatic shift of liquidity from one place to another overnight. So 
up till now, somewhere between 75 and 80% of our business was European share trading done in London. And what we saw happen yesterday is that 75, 80%, 95% of it moved over to our Paris office overnight. Wow. And that that meant, you know, when we're looking at talking about 1.8 billion, about 1.4 billion euros of business moved out of the UK into the EU. Wow. That's a huge number, and for just one of many companies. What will that mean for the health of the British economy, tax receipts? Um, Suddenly, 80% of our revenue is being derived in France. Now, you know, that means that that will get taxed in France. Uh, and that is tax that is lost to the United Kingdom. When you look at the very, very large financial institutions, I reckon that they will see the same thing happen. And that is a big fear for something that pays so much into the Treasury coffers will suddenly be a problem for the government over the next year or so. And I think that's something that is of great concern because what the government needs now is more tax revenues and not less. Is, is this just the future now? Is this what's going to happen? Or do you think there is a possibility that in the next three months they'll come up with a deal which brings business back to London? I think it is very clear that you know this horse has bolted so far it is now in a different stable. And I think trying to negotiate now, why would the EU want to give back, knowing that if they grant equivalents, that business could shift back straight back to London? And they don't want that to happen. I think very sadly... London is no longer going to be the financial centre for the trading of European equities. Now, that does absolutely not mean that London is lost as a financial services centre. Quite the reverse. But I think what does have to happen now is London really has to concentrate on how it becomes an innovative and entrepreneurial environment to allow new businesses to want to position themselves somewhere in the United Kingdom. I mean, what does this mean for, for the city as a financial centre? Well, I think that it, it's got great risks here. I think we're going to continue to see a move to make it tougher and tougher for the UK to conduct financial services business in Europe. It's not just a battle between the UK and Europe, because countries like America, you know, Japan, China, etc., within the Far East, they're also the kingmakers here. Because they can actually decide to do their business in Europe, or they could decide to do it in the United Kingdom. Now, I think the shock to me yesterday was, I believed that business would move from the UK to the EU. I didn't believe it would happen overnight. The shocking thing is that it literally was the turn of a switch. The ability to make this change without errors and very smoothly as it went yesterday across all markets um, has become far, far better in effect over the last few years because there is a significant advancement in the use of technology in the financial services industry. So if you hadn't set up an office in Paris, what would have happened yesterday? Would you just have lost all of that business? Absolutely. It would have been a tragic event. And I'm sure there are companies out there, particularly smaller businesses that are very entrepreneurial, very innovative, however, don't necessarily have the finance to be able to establish a regulated entity somewhere else in Europe. What are your concerns, though, for the, for the future of the city? I, I think in an over-regulated and high-taxed jurisdiction, you won't succeed. 
But if we can find ways to be innovative, where we reduce the cost of regulation without lowering standards, and we keep and maintain a low tax environment that incentivizes entrepreneurs to actually establish business and get finance in London, then I don't think we will you know, have any problems. And the deal we've come out of Europe with, will it restrict our ability to change our regulatory environment? I mean, could we actually become Singapore on terms of is, is that no longer possible? I think what will happen is that today our rules are equivalent, but we're not getting the benefits of that from having the passport. So I think, yes, the United Kingdom will change its rules and it will change and diverge away once they've tried to negotiate equivalence and they failed, I'm pretty convinced that that is what will happen. Whether we end up with a Switzerland-like economy or whether we look like Singapore on Thames, I think it's too early to say. But what I do know is that you will see great change, great innovation, and I'm pretty convinced that a lot of this is going to be technology-led. So will the city end up as Singapore on Thames? I asked the Sunday Times city editor, Jill Trinor. Well, that's the thing that's really hard to pin your finger on, because first of all, people point out to me actually that Singapore does have quite a tight regulatory regime, and so it's a bit of an unfair idea. But I think the idea is that perhaps you loosen up your rules in certain areas so you make it easier for businesses to want to be based in Britain. Now, clearly that also throws open up the whole debate is, you know, we know as a major financial centre, people will be concerned about, you know, does dirty money spill through London? You know, is that a good or a bad thing? And I sort of think, I, I spoke to John Glenn, who's the city minister at the start of the year. And I mean, I got the impression from him that actually what the message they're trying to get across at the moment is actually what they really want to do is maintain the highest standards that they possibly can. And that that's the way to make London an attractive place to do business. What are your sort of predictions? What do you think the city would look like in five years' time? It's interesting, that, isn't it, with COVID? Have some jobs not moved some people not moved because COVID and the restrictions that's brought in place. Mm. And then you also think about COVID and the technological changes that we're all working with. Does that have implications for the way people work generally in the future? Will people be less focused on where activity is taking place? Will that become less important? Will, will that have implications on regulation if you can now trade from a beautiful Caribbean island and before you had to be stuck in Canary Wharf. <laughs> One banker I spoke to, I thought was really interesting because he was making the point that maybe in a few years' time, we won't be thinking about Brexit at all. And we will be thinking about the way technology has changed. But what if you replaced all traders with AI? People keep yeah. talking about all these extraordinary technology that's available. And I sort of think that is the thing that you can't put your finger on. The one thing that people tell me repeatedly about the city is that what it's got in its favour is where it sits in the global time clock. You can still do business with people in London if you're trading in Asia, you're there at the start of the trading day in New York. Yeah. People seem to like the English language, whatever you might think of that. And people also seem to like the idea of the way our legal system operates. One of the things that I think we will be watching, everybody will be watching, is this business that has left London, where will that go? Will it be that we see one new financial centre pop up in the EU. So will it be Paris? Will it be Frankfurt, Amsterdam, Dublin? Or will we see that business fragmenting through different centres in the EU? Or will these big firms just think, you know what, we'll just put this business through New York because that's kind of more straightforward. But it does sound like it's all still to play for. It certainly does. <laughs> Thank you.
You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, policy editor at The Times, Oliver Wright, city editor at The Sunday Times, Jill Trinor, and CEO of Aquis Exchange PLC, Alistair Haynes. You can read more of Oliver and Jill's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producers today were Oliver Adamson, Asia Fuchs and Leona Hamid. The executive producer is Poppy Damon and sound design was by Carla Patella. If you have a moment, please do leave us a review. It'll help new listeners to find us. And if you'd like to get in touch about anything you've just heard or with any thoughts on stories that you'd like us to look into, then please do email storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow. Subscribe today and get one month free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.